The following message is from the audio teaching library of the Briarwood Pulpit, a ministry of the Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. Our speaker is Dr. Harry Reeder, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church. It is our hope and prayer that this message will equip and encourage you in your walk with Christ, and as a result, you will be used by our Lord as an instrument of change to further His kingdom and bring honor and glory to the name of Christ. Here now is our pastor-teacher, Harry Reeder. If you're able, please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. And I would ask that you would turn with me to the account of the triumphal entry as it is found in John chapter 12. John chapter 12. I'll be calling on the other texts that refer to this. We won't be turning to them this morning, but I will be calling on them. You'll find them in Matthew, Mark, and Luke as well. And uh, commend them to your personal study, even as I draw from them this morning. But we'll read this text for its exposition. Look with me in John chapter 12 and verse 12. The next day, the large crowd, it's actually a number of elements to this crowd. And John's going to enumerate them for you if you'll pay close attention. The very next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they, that crowd from Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and they went out to meet him crying out. And the other text tells us, led by children, Hosanna, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. The quotes of the messianic king from Psalm 118. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it just as it is written. Zechariah 9. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's coat. Don't fear. Why? Look how he's coming on a donkey's coat. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered them, that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, they continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. Well, they're not quite accurate. But let me tell you what is true. He's going after the whole world. Praise his name forever. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God abides forever. May this word be preached for you. Please be seated. It has been reported to me that Bruce will make certain comments about me, I think in jest. He tends to make a habit of this. For some reason, he's got the false notion of job security. I'm not quite sure why, but I know that he does that from time to time, and I'm about to give you one of them that I know he says. You see, when I became a Christian, I was um, on a path to either being a seeking to be a professor of history or in law enforcement. In fact, I had a double major, criminology and, and history, and that's where I was headed. And now saved, and I say, Lord, if you can use me that way, I'd love to be used. But God kept insisting on the call to the ministry, so I left that. And then um, with both the external and internal call at work, uh, the Lord allowed me to serve him. And what a great blessing to serve him with you here at Briarwood and our membership and leadership. Thank the Lord for each and every one of you. 
But um, so that's how I got there. But I have to confess to you, I still have a deep appreciation for uh, law enforcement, as you well know. I, I love those who uh, run to the problem and not away from it. I understand those that run away, but I, I, how I uh, appreciate those who run to it for the safety of others. And then I'm also very, very appreciative of the whole discipline of history. In fact, I love it that I, one of the things that I loved, I told Cindy, well, I didn't give up history. In fact, I've got the only inerrant history book that has ever been written. It is the history of God's glorious works of grace, God's glorious works of grace in creation, redemption, and providence. And I'm so grateful for the Word of God, its historicity, its accuracy, its inerrancy, its trustworthiness, and how God uses it so that we can know Jesus and therefore know our triune God to give him glory instead of being separated from him because of our sin and not only know him, but with the word of God guiding us by the spirit of God, we can follow him. And with the word of God, we can be directed as to how to glorify him and bear witness of him that others might be brought to him. So I am grateful for that. But let me let you in a little bit on uh, on uh, Bruce's comment is that um, Harry is a historian and therefore he is an incurable romantic. Well, he's true. That's true. Historians are pretty much incurable romantic. And I confess to being an incurable romantic. Right, honey? Good. Okay, so uh, I confess to that. When I get, when I, I love to study something and then if I can get to where it happened, it's amazing the insight that happens when you get on site. When I get on site to one of those events that I've studied, I cannot describe to you the multiple varied emotions that come over me. But I will take the moment now to tell you one. There is this deep desire that comes upon me. I would give anything to talk to someone who saw it happen or participated in it happening. Well, as you know, one of the I do Reformation trips and I also do the every other year uh, next year. It's coming up. We had to postpone it, but um, hopefully Israel is going to open up back up to us. And I'll be doing my either 16th or 17th learning the Bible in the land of the Bible when I take people there. So the event we're looking at today is a historical event. And I've actually walked this path. Uh, on numerous occasions. Let me go ahead and give you a clue. From Bethany and Bethphage on the eastern slope, just over the summit of Mount Olives, you go up and over the Mount of Olives and you come down a well-worn path that today is paved. It's steep. And you come down and then you cross over the Kidron Brook. And back then you would go up through the eastern gate. Uh, that day I can't. It's blocked up in fulfillment of the prophecy of Scripture. But I did go around to the Stevens Gate and I went in. And basically, uh, with a nice walk, it's about a 35 to 40 minute uh, walk is what it is. Uh, that's what it would take you to walk it. Now, my guess is on the day that Jesus did this, given the crowds, given the confusion, given all the things that are happening, my guess is somewhere around 50 minutes to an hour. And we also are revealed that he did pause one time. Uh, may have paused more than that, but we do know he paused one time. And uh, and so uh, that's kind of what happened at that moment. That's and and as I would at one of those that emotion would hit me, boy, eyewitness participant. And then, of course, I realized I've got a record of an eyewitness. In fact, I've got four of them, Matthew, Mark. Luke and John. Now, Mark is not the eyewitness. Mark is the writer of the gospel of Mark, but the originator of the gospel of Mark is Peter. 
So you've got Peter's witness, you've got Matthew's witness, you've got Luke's witness, who got his witness uh, from the witnesses that were there that he recorded. And then I've got John. Now, interesting, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record from the summit down. John records, as you just saw, coming up from Jerusalem. I don't know why, John. I have a theory. Can I give you a theory? I remember that uh, they went to get those that, that the donkey and the foal of a donkey, the colt of the. You remember that? That's that's what happened. And um, I think John might have gone to set that up. I don't know. But John is coming back from the city and is identifying with that crowd that's coming out. In fact, the crowd that's coming out really is a crowd that has five streams to it. Uh, it's made up of the believers in Bethany, a place that Jesus would stay often. It was the home of three very good friends of his, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And it's a place where uh, months before he had raised Lazarus from the dead. And so it is that place where he had stayed. And there were a lot of, of followers of Jesus that surrounded him with the days in the times that he was there. And after he kept Sabbath in Bethany and Bethphage on the first day of the week, he now comes into, that would have been Sunday, he now comes into Israel. But that's not the only part of the crowd. There's another crowd that has gathered around him. It's the curious. John refers to them as do the others. That is those that heard Lazarus, who was raised from the dead, who was quite the object of curiosity. Now they said, the one that came to raise him from the dead, he is there. So they're coming to see Jesus, not just Lazarus. They're coming to see Jesus. And they're coming to see Jesus because he's the one who raised. So you've got the Bethany uh, crowd. You've got the curious crowd. And then thirdly, you've got his own disciples, not only the 12, but also likely some of the 70 that had collected with him since he had left the Galilee and made his way, setting his face to Jerusalem, which is the record from Luke 9 on uh, to this point. That's three groups. Now, there's a fourth group. They've been referred to as the Sanhedrin led by the Pharisees. That's the group that's got a plan. The plan, stop Jesus, kill Lazarus. That's their plan. Stop Jesus, kill Lazarus. And they're trying to figure out how they're going to get that done. There's a fifth group. And the fifth group are the pilgrims that have arrived in Jerusalem, probably tripling the size of Jerusalem at least. The pilgrims that have, have arrived for the Feast of the Passover, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, they have arrived to celebrate it. And, that, and they hear that the one that raised Lazarus from the dead is coming today, and they come out to meet him. This must be the king we have wanted, the king that we have longed for. This must be the Messiah. Messiah, prophet, priest, and king. So they come out with pawns led by children, singing the psalm of the Messiah, Psalm 118, the Hallel. And they're singing the Hallel, and they turn it into a triumphal entry of a king. And they do so uh, meeting Jesus at the summit with the other crowds, and they're all around him. We're at the summit of what? The summit of the Mount of Olives. You know, Jerusalem is a very interesting city. It is a city that's on 
uh, three little mountains. And I say little because it's surrounded by mountains that are bigger. Basically, there's Mount Zion that's there, but they're surrounded by mountains. In fact, I remember one of the first praise music that was written back in the 1970s uh, in this new generation of quote-unquote praise music. Uh, it was um, it was a city to the psalm that declares about the city of the great king beautifully situated on the sides of the mountain. That they're surrounded. In fact, the psalmist says, oh, oh, Jerusalem, surrounded by the mountains as you are surrounded by God. Well, theologically, it's a wonderful picture, the geography of Jerusalem surrounded by the mountains, all of which are taller than them. And the tallest of the mountains that surround Jerusalem and Mount Zion is the Mount of Olives. It's 300 feet taller than any other mountain. So with all the tall mountains, it may be a beautiful place in uh, geography, in beauty, and it may be one in terms of theology for what we can teach and see. But it is a terrible location militarily. And because of these high mountains, they will be defeated and swept through by empire after empire. Now it's Rome. And so there they are on the Mount of Olives. Folks, this is sacred real estate in your Bible. The Mount of Olives. It's set apart for sacred use by Moses. Long before there's a Jerusalem. And the city of the great king established. It is Moses that in numbers declares that in the place of worship, there will be a hill opposite. And numbers 19 points to the Mount of Olives. In which there would be the sacrifice, there would be the preparation for the sacrifice of the red heifer. The red heifer was a very special sacrifice. You not only had the special sacrifice of the Passover lamb, you had the red heifer. And it was a substitutionary sacrifice of the red heifer pointing to the sacrifice of a Messiah and the crimson blood by which we are redeemed. But that sacrifice could not take place without the rites of purification and baptisms. And that was to be done on the Mount of Olives. Now, I know some of you are sitting there, hey, how in the world are they going to baptize on the Mount of Olives? There's no river up there. Well, would you join me on a Wednesday night as I teach you what is the biblical mode of baptism? And you'll have that problem solved and it won't bother you anymore after today. But right there was set up the rites of purification for the red heifer and those that would bring the sacrifice. Well, that place that was set aside for holy doesn't stay holy long. When Absalom turns on David and is trying to not only take the kingdom but kill him, it is over the Mount of Olives that David makes his escape. And here is David, the king, making his escape over the Mount of Olives. Now you've got the king, greater than David, of the seed of David, coming the other direction to die in Jerusalem to set us free. Well, in fact, the Mount of Olives became so horrendous that God one day brought a revival to Israel, beginning in Jerusalem under a king by the name of Josiah. And Josiah looked at that mountain that was to be used for the holy purposes of purification for the sacrifice of the red heifer. And all he could see were 
idols. There were the altars to Ashtaroth, Chemosh, Molech, and the kings had erected these gods, these false gods, these idols. And on the Mount of Olives was not only idolatry and false worship, but child sacrifice. Chemosh, Molech, Ashtaroth. Therefore, Josiah called it the hill of corruption. And he tore down all of the idols on that hill in the day of, re- in the day of revival. You fast forward to the coming of Jesus. This, this, this pathway was, Jesus came to Jerusalem on a number of occasions. And this would have been the pathway he would have taken from Jericho up to Bethany, Bethphage, and then over the Mount of Olives. This isn't the first time. This is an ordinary path that's about to be made extraordinary because of who is walking it and what he's going to do with it when he gets there. But this is a very common path that comes over the Mount of Olives. Mount of Olives is not unusual to him. It's the place to which he, when he was in Jerusalem, would go to set apart for prayer. And to meet with the Lord. In fact, he had a little retreat center that they will use this week on two nights. It's called the Garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives. And it is there that he, ha- he, will, he will also go and he, it is there that he will deliver his last sermon. It's called the Olivet Discourse during this week. On Wednesday of this week, he will deliver the Olivet Discourse in that evening. You'll find it in Matthew 24 and 25. And then he'll come back there after he has established the Lord's Supper, which we will observe on Monday, Thursday here. The last Passover meal, the bloody meal, now turned into the bloodless Lord's Supper meal in anticipation of the marriage supper that we will have with him in all eternity, the Lord's Supper. And when they arrived back from the, from the upper room, having established the Lord's Supper, what did they do? He called, he called Peter, James, and John, and he had a prayer meeting, a late-night prayer meeting, in which they displayed... Their sleepiness as they kept falling asleep. And there he will be betrayed. And there he will be arrested. It's also there that an interesting thing happens. Peter, when they come to betray him, and he is betrayed by one of his own, Judas, who manifests that he never really knew Jesus by his betrayal. Not savingly. And Peter just happened to have a sword. Can I put that into Alabama language? Peter kind of knew things were amiss. So Peter was packing. He had his sword with him. He pulls it out uh, he, and he cuts off the, uh, one of the servant's ears. Now, I think he was actually trying to split his head open and just didn't. And Miss Ain, Jesus healed it. And then he said this, put it away, Peter. And here's something you need to hear. I am not coming with the power of military might and the state, I'm coming with the power of the sword of the Spirit. That's how I'm coming. That's how this kingdom is advanced. He'll be taken away to trials, but he's not through with the Mount of Olives. After he is resurrected and he goes on his Bible teaching tour of 40 days, he'll come back to the Mount of Olives and he will ascend into the heavens 
And there is the true triumphal entry. As he who descended, now ascended, leading captives, those whom he have captured by salvation at the cross. And by the way, (laughs) he's not through yet. Not with the Mount of Olives. Harry, what else? Well, the same passage that tells us why he's walking over it today also tells us that the Mount of Olives was his port of call for departure. It will also be his port of call when he returns. Zechariah says he'll return. Even as the angel said, he shall come again in like manner. And when he lands this time, instead of the north-south valleys of the Rift Valley, he's going to split it the other way, east to west, and bring forth the judgment, and then into the new heavens and the new earth, when he comes again to this same sacred space. But now he's at the top of it. Before he arrives at the top, he has already made some preparations. He sends away two disciples who go into the town. And they're to get a donkey and a colt. He says, and when you see it, untie them, bring it to me. And when they ask you, what are you doing? You tell them, the Lord has use, has need for it. And then bring it. And so they do. They find it, just as he had said. And they untie them, and they're bringing them. And sure enough, folks, you have no idea how valuable a donkey and a, and a foal is, a foal of a colt. That'd be like me showing up and saying, hey, I just found out the Lord's got use for your two cars. Uh, would you just sign them over to me, please? Uh, they, this, is, this is a big-time resource, and they give it over. Just as, and we don't even know whether they said, okay, take it. We don't know anything. They just know as soon as they said the Lord has need of it, it's gone. It was freely given. And it was taken back. And then it arrives. And what did the disciples do when it arrives? They put their clothes, their clothes, or they clothed the donkeys so that Jesus would sit on it. And uh, by the way, Here's how you know they don't know Zechariah 9.9 is in vogue here. They don't know that Jesus is fulfilling Zechariah 9.9. They don't know that. How do I know that they know that? They don't know that. Because Zechariah 9.9 says the king will come, and the king will come riding on what? Can anybody finish it? You just, you just confessed it. The king will come riding on what? Come on, folks. This is, we, we do back and forth here. What is it? What will they come riding on? The cult of a donkey. Why did they bother putting it on the other donkey? Because they haven't got a clue right now. They don't, until, until Jesus teaches them during the 40 days and until he is glorified, they didn't understand this. Then they understood it. At that point, they said, well, it's obvious Jesus is going to go in right. Wonder which one he's going to use. I don't know. Put clothes on both of them. But Jesus got on the right one to fulfill the prophecy. The cult, the foal of a donkey. And then he wrote it in. That's an amazing thing. To ride that in down that steep, steep path. We don't know. We don't know much that goes on there except what we have now already learned. We got a celebrating crowd, but we already know. This is probably, there's a lot in here that in a few days are going to be saying crucify him. Here's Palm Sunday. By the way, Resurrection Sunday's coming. How many are going to be gathered on that day? Seven. When Jesus assembles them in the upper room. At least that's what we know of. What do we see here? 
we see all of these crowds, these five streams making this crowd, all the celebration, all of the enthusiasm, all of the cacophony, all of it's going on. But there's one, and I've read it and read it and read it. There's one who is not celebrating. He is not celebrative, and he doesn't claim celebrity status. He's contemplative. He's pensive. He's focused. He's thoughtful. He's emotional. He'll only stop one time and he'll be weeping when he stops. And it's there that he weeps over his people and Israel. And because he comes to his own and they reject him and he weeps. That's the king that's coming in. And as he comes in, he goes across the Kidron Brook, through the Eastern Gate, up to Temple Mount. And he looks in, does his reconnaissance, turns around and goes back up over the Mount of Olives as he will do the next day. And the next day, one of those trips, he'll curse a fig tree and explain it, why he cursed it when he gives the Olivet Sermon at the Garden of Gethsemane on that Wednesday night. But as he is doing this, he'll come back the next day. He'll cleanse the temple. And he'll come back and be met by Philip who brings some Gentiles. And when the Gentiles come, they say, we want to see Jesus. And Jesus says, the time is now for the Son of Man to be crucified and lifted up. And he will draw all men to himself. Now, what is it that you, what is it that we can distill out of this? Well, let me give this to you. Uh, I'm, Now, can I tell you, I'm going to cheat a little bit on you this morning, but it's a sanctified cheating. It's not a sinful cheating. Normally, I like to give you one takeaway that you can focus on when we walk our way through understanding the text. But today, I am. that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you one takeaway, but it's got three sub-points to it. And therefore, it's got three walkaways with the takeaway. All right? So let me give you the takeaway itself. This is the greatest week in history. And as a Christian, I know it. As a historian, I have no problem saying it. This is a week of history. The historicity of this event, I can vouch for. As a historian, I have no problem defending. As a Christian, I already believe it because it's in the Bible and the Bible can't err. So I know all of that. This is the greatest week in history. In fact, I only think there's only one other week that comes close to comparing with this week. And that's the week of creation. Harry, why do you think this one's greater than the week of creation? I mean, hello, earth, moon, stars. And by the way, he flung out the stars. And uh, that he speaks and out of nothing brings everything into existence. And in that week, three days he brings everything into existence and forms it. Then three days he fills it. And then he rests. What a glorious week it is. 
But I don't see all of his glory in that week. I see much of his glory, but I don't see all of his glory. Why? Because we're going to mess that week up. You know what we're going to do? We're going to sin. And what is God's response going to be? He could bring judgment, but he doesn't. He promises he'll bring a woman through which will come a seed. And that seed will crush the head of the serpent, even though his heel will be bruised. And that brings us to this week. Jesus, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. On the third day, he rose again. This is the greatest week. Because this week, I not only see God's glory, I see the glory of his glory. Because in this week, I see his grace. There's no grace yet displayed in Genesis 1 and 2. Why? There's no sin in that first week. There's no sin there. When do I, and people always ask me, why did God allow sin? Well, I can tell you one reason, for his glory. Because you would never know the patience of God, the mercy of God, the justice of God, the grace of God. You'd never know any of that without the presence of sin. But when here is sin, it is now present. Now we fast forward from his promise that he gives in Genesis 3 and the unfolding of the work of grace that now brings us to this week. And in this week, Jesus on this day starts a journey that's going to go to a day of atonement, Yom Kippur. And on that day that the Passover lamb was to be slain, here is the lamb of of God that will be slain to save sinners from their sins. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It is on this day that the glory, the praise of His glorious grace is being seen in all of its majesty on this Savior who on this day directs Himself to that place and on this day directs Himself to that place and on that day we will see the wrath of God that is satisfied in the Son of God, by the grace of God, to save sinners to the glory of God. That's what we will see. That was the greatest week there ever was. Here, Jesus, you are my victory. Hallelujah. I sung it because I believe it. Because I know what he did on this week. Eight days to glory, where he makes all things new. Here is the week that changes everything to the glory of God. And it starts this day. Lift up your heads, O gates and ancient doors, that the King of glory and grace may come in. I want you to just As you walk through this week, I want you to think of that king. I want you to think of three things about that king. Okay? Here's the first thing that this day tells you about this king. He's sovereign. God is sovereign over everything. Here you see the sovereign hand of God. This, let me ask you a question. How many times have you read your Bible and Jesus does something miraculous and then he tells the person, don't tell anybody what comes next? Does anyone know what the sentence is that always accompanies that? Don't tell anybody. Why? Why don't tell anybody? Does anybody remember what he says? My time is not yet. 
Well, guess what he's doing this day by fulfilling Zechariah 9.9 intentionally, on purpose. He's telling everybody he is the Messiah. He is the Christos. He is the anointed one. He is the prophet, the priest, and the king. It's announcing and everything is moving forward. Why? Well, it's in Romans 5, and we will get there in our Sunday morning series on Romans. We'll get back there. We'll get there. And what does it say in Romans 5? For Christ died for the ungodly. When? At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. God works on his timetable. God is sovereign to accomplish his purposes. But there's something here I want you to see. Why doesn't Jesus say, oh, you can go tell anybody you want to because, you know, God in his sovereignty just turns everybody into robots. It doesn't matter. No, God accomplished his sovereign purposes through the moral agency of man. Now, please notice, I didn't say the free moral agency of man because we're born what? Dead in our sins. Our will is in the bondage and the dominion of sin. There is none who seek God. There is none who can. There is none who will. We have to be born again. But when God saves people, he doesn't drop a fate on them. He works in their mind, their heart, their will, their emotions. He works upon them. And when God accomplishes in this, his purposes in this world, he draws straight lines with crooked sticks. He works through unbelievers and believers. He gets his purposes accomplished. And he knows man plans his way, but God directs his steps. Now's the time I'm going to pull the trigger and it's going to lead me to the cross right there because this king has come to die for the sins for the sins of his people from every tribe and nation Jew and Gentile to bring them to saving glory in Jesus Christ this is God's sovereign hand revealing this is the right time and he does so by affirming the integrity of God's word. Sixty plus prophecies are fulfilled in the 33 years of Christ. Messianic prophecies. Here is one. Zechariah 9.9. The disciples, even at the moment, don't know it. They do know it. That's why they included in the account. In other words, folks, if you had asked the disciples on Tuesday... Let's say, if you asked the disciples on Monday, would you write an account of what happened yesterday? They would have never put Zechariah 9.9. They didn't understand. But after the resurrection, after the 40 days Bible teaching itinerant tour, and after he ascended, they understood what was done by him, to him, and through him. Here is a sovereign God revealing himself. Revealing himself to Jew and Gentile alike that he is the Messiah that has come. This is the one that is the fulfillment of Zechariah 9-9. Of nine, of nine. This is the one who comes on the donkey. Why? And I did it on purpose. I included in our confession not only 9-9 but 9-10. You shall here is your king. Your king is coming to you. He's coming for you. He's coming to you. He has come to be one with you, one of you. He is coming to save you, this king of righteousness and salvation. But he's not coming on the white 
horse of war to bring judgment. He is coming on the donkey to bear judgment because this king is a king of righteousness who is coming for your salvation to bring peace. Which is why when he does stop on the Mount of Olives, he weeps and says, Oh, my people, that you had known the one who has come to make you and bring to you peace. There's where, now listen to me, there's where peace is. Peace is not, if I've been oppressed, I get to be the oppressor. Peace is not, my political agenda wins. Peace is not what you buy. Peace is not in your position in this world. Peace is not in celebrity status. Peace is not everything revolving around you and me. Peace is found in surrender and coming to Christ as Lord and Savior. There is a lot of people coming out to him, but they are not coming out to surrender to him. They are coming out looking for their own Messiah. They're looking for a Messiah of political victory. They're looking for a Messiah of power and might, state military power. They're looking for the Messiah that will cleanse their land of the Romans and the Gentiles. What they're getting is not a Messiah coming to go to the throne to cleanse the land of Romans and a Roman Empire and of the Gentiles. They're getting a Messiah that's coming to go to a cross. He'll first cleanse the temple. Then he'll go to the cross to cleanse us. And he's not coming out to throw out the Gentiles. He's coming to save Jew and Gentile. That's what he's doing. Not a Messiah of our wish list. Not the Messiah who meets our wants. He's the Messiah who meets our needs. How can a man, how can a woman, how can you be right with God and know the glory and the might and the power of God's grace to his praise forevermore? You want to see his sovereign hand one more time? I promise the last two are going to go a lot quicker. Hang with me. Do you know, do you know how, do you know, do you know the sovereign hand again? What did the Sanhedrin, what, they're going to make use of the Romans, the Sanhedrin led by the Pharisees, they're going to make use of the Romans. What's their plan? Their plan A was what? Kill Lazarus, stop, stop Jesus. Now they turn on each other. Can you hear when this, all this Palm Sunday stuff's going on? What happens to them? God sovereignly not only is working to show fickle unbelievers, He's not only working to equip His believers, He's not only coming to go to a cross and declare that He's Messiah and set in motion so that He will die for the ungodly and save us at the right time, Jew and Gentile from every tribe and nation. And by the way, the prophecy of Zechariah says that He will come as King to all the nations from the river to the 
the ends of the earth to save Jew and Gentile. God doesn't have a plan for the Jew and a plan for the Gentile. He's got one plan, and that is to save sinners from every tribe and nation and bring them into the kingdom of God. That is his plan. And this plan is coming together. But God in his sovereignty through Jesus is accomplishing, as the Son of God incarnate, he is accomplishing another glorious thing, if you'll see what he's doing. They've got plan A. They then, out of frustration, turn on each other. Look, your plan's not working. Well, it was actually their plan, too. But you look, the plan's not working. The whole world is going after him. What they don't know, he's just going after the whole world. And so they change plans. Forget Lazarus, kill Jesus. We'll find a turncoat. We'll pay him 30 pieces of silver. The deal will be sealed by Wednesday. What they think is their plan B is God's plan A. It'll send Jesus to the cross to save you and me. No man takes his life. He freely gave it. He sovereignly is at work through the heart, emotions, and minds, and wills of believers and unbelievers to get to that cross. He's pensive. He's thoughtful. He's focused. He's got a mission, and he is on mission in order to deliver us. From our sins. Here's the second one. Christ is not only the sovereign king of glory. He's the committed king of glory. He will not be stopped. He is now ignite. He has now ignited the switch. He is on his way to that cross to save us from our sins. He is committed. He is relentless. He is unstoppable. Father, all whom you give me, I lose none, but I'll raise them up on the last day. Why? Because he'll save all of his people from all of his sins, from all of our sins on the cross as he bears our sins and takes the wrath of God in order for us to magnify the grace of God because in Christ the wrath of God has been satisfied to save us and now we're clothed with the righteousness of God in Christ now when you see that I want you to see something else a committed king produces committed disciples he sends two disciples they don't ask they just go Jesus why They're not doing this to be saved. They're doing this because they love their Savior. Jesus said, go get the foal of the coat. Go get the donkey in the foal, the donkey in the coat. They go. You got disciples there. All they have to be told is the Savior needs it, and they give it. So let me go back and let's say that I decide to come to you and say, hey, you know, I understand this, 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 this illustration falls apart. But what if, say, you know, you got a couple of cars, we're going to need them, got a missionary enterprise that Jesus has started. Two cars will be able to do it. Can I I, uh, crank up your two cars and drive them off? And that's not even close to what this was. They don't say a word. I mean, there's no word recorded. They say, why are you taking the donkey and the coat? The, the Lord has need of it. The Lord's got a use for it. Okay. Now, I don't know if they said okay. They just left. I don't know whether it was sent back. I don't. I know God is a debtor to no one. So some, and he gave them the donkey and the colt to begin with. If he calls for it, they're ready to give it. That's what I want you to see. They're committed. Uh, they didn't say, now wait, wait, wait just a minute. Would you mind telling Jesus I've already tithed? I'm not doing faith promise offering. Nope. They're committed. Now, if you're getting a little bit of conviction now, praise the Lord. But now I want to help you. (laughs) You know, the disciples have been with him three years. This week, they're going to fall away. One of them, I'm sorry, they're going to fall down. One of them will fall away. That's Judas. He never knew him. But the rest of them will fall away out of fear. They will fall away. 
Folks, listen to me. Please listen to me. I'm taking just a minute. I believe those of us who want to follow Jesus as Lord and Savior, we want to do the Great Commission, be on mission, on message in ministry. And we want to develop a culture here of the great commandment. You love the Lord with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your neighbors yourself. We are going, we're in a time of sifting and shifting. The world is going to try to silence you into being silent about Jesus Christ. Now, are you committed? And here's what I want you to see. Your commitment will falter just like the disciples unless you stay fixed on Jesus. In a day of sifting and shifting, the people that stand, they're never perfect, but the people that persevere are those who are every day and every Lord's day being fed the word of God and surrendering to the spirit of God. You can't stand for Jesus unless you're feasting on him in his word and surrender to his spirit. And when you when Jesus has strengthened you and gives you the strength of his presence early in the morning on the Lord's day and you feast on his word as the in the sacrament you feast on the word through the preaching of the word is through the foolishness of the preaching that we're being saved and you have made those priorities in life so that you are founded and fixed on Jesus through his word and by his spirit then in the day of sifting and shifting those are the Christians who will stand and those are the churches that will stand and be on mission on message and in ministry and they will be marked by a culture where they love the Lord with all their heart, soul, and mind, and strength, and they'll love their neighbor as themselves. You won't find them being divided up by the world. The world's identity markers do not control us. We are the people of God. We are united in the Spirit. We are one in Christ. We are saved by the same blood, dwelt in by the same Spirit. We're not rich Christians and poor Christians. That's not how we identify. We're not black. We're not white. We understand all of those markers and their place in the world and how they're used. But They do not direct us. What directs us is the love of Christ and the love of others in Christ. And when I meet my brothers and sisters, it's not an up and inner and a down and outer. We are in Christ together. Ethnicity, it has its place, but it does not determine our love for one another. Our love for one another, nor do the political movements of this world. I don't go, I don't just, uh, I don't just go with those who are politically agreed with me at every jot and tittle. Well, if you love Jesus and you're committed to Jesus and you're surrounded to Jesus, let's come together to worship Jesus and then let's scatter to bear witness for Jesus. That's what we will do together. And that's who we are. A great commitment to a great commandment and a great and a great commission. But it will not stand if you are not fixed on Jesus through his word and by his spirit. Please listen to me. So every church today that's going to be sifted and shifted, stay fixed on Jesus. Be faithful in the preaching, the prayer, the worship of God. Be faithful to his word and may his people do that. Those are the ones that will stand at the end. The rest who want a seat at the table of culture will accommodate the culture. Thirdly and finally, and I'm done, I'm sorry. But I'll go less as we go through the week, okay? Christ, the compassionate King of glory. Let me ask you a question. Are you frustrated at all with the way things are going? And when you see the people that are frustrating you, how do you see them? 
I tell you how, let me confess. I'm frustrated with them. Not just with things, with them. I get angry at them. And I realize sometimes that is not divine anger, the anger of God that has righteousness of God. This is my own anger and my frustration. What does Jesus do? He sees his adversaries and he weeps. And that's not just a momentary thing. Even at the cross, he'll say, forgive them. They know not what they do. When you see the adversaries, do you see your adversary that you want God to take out? Or do you see a future member of the kingdom of God? This, Jesus didn't just speak during the, Jesus spoke to Abraham. Remember the Christophanies? He spoke to Abraham. Remember the Christophanies? He spoke to Jacob. Remember from the burning bush? He spoke to Moses. Remember from Mount Sinai? He spoke to Moses. Jesus has been speaking for thousands of years through Christophanies. Now the incarnate Christ is here. And as the incarnate Christ, what does he do? He speaks the truth in love. And what do they do? Crucify him. And what does he say? Oh, how I would have gathered you as a hen gathers his chicks, her chicks to herself. You who stoned the prophets, they're about to crucify the Messiah. Romans, Jews, Gentiles, rich, poor. And he has come to save them from their sins. Our adversaries... Let's pray, let's plead, and with passion, let's persuade. Let's lament and weep. Oh, God, save them. And may God use us to reach them. Pray with me, would you? Father, thank you for these few short moments together that... This text demands so much more, but Lord, we've arrived here. And I just ask, would you please overrule all the inadequacies of this preacher? And would you let your people see this king of glory, not a Messiah for our worldly and personal wish list, but a redeemer, a Messiah who saves us. From our sins, their penalty, their power, increasingly from their practice and one day from their presence. The king of grace that will take us to glory. Father, those here who know you and love you, please, this day, even this week, would you refresh, renew, equip and encourage them so that we are in the world, but not of the world. And we have a king, Jesus, who saved us, who is coming again on his throne. But on this day came for his cross to save us. Hallelujah. What a savior. Amen. You have been listening to a message by Harry Reader. Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more information on the resources available through Briarwood Presbyterian Church, or for more information on the teaching ministry of Pastor Reader, visit us at briarwood.org or call 205-776-2000.
5200. 